0: Welcome to Chatter. I'm David Priest, publisher of Lawfare. This week, former U.S. government official Olivia Troy on how to support a vice president.
1: We are there to serve the greater good, right, regardless of who is in the Oval Office. And you do that job and you do it to the best that you can. While we're divided regionally in the vice president's office, I was more the functional person and then sort of by de facto, the catch-all. So <laughs> if it, we don't have enough fill
0: Then it's Olivia's job um, to fill in.
1: Then it's Olivia's job. This is not something that I ever saw myself doing. I would watch people on TV. You know, I'd watch Phil Mudd, who's from the FBI and CIA. And I think if you would have asked me any time in my career, like, oh, would you be interested in doing that? The answer would have been, heck no.
0: Run away. No way. Olivia, welcome to Chatter.
1: Hey, thanks for having me.
0: I know a lot of people have seen you on various media and heard you talking about things ranging from the pandemic to politics to national security, but they haven't gotten to know you. So, so let's go back a bit. I want to hear how a daughter of immigrants gets to the Coalition Provisional Authority in Baghdad and then to the eisenhower executive office building working on the vice president's staff walk us through your process the how did olivia get to washington story
1: <laughs> sure thanks and hey you've done your research um the fact that you know that i was at cpa not many people know that <laughs> so i appreciate that you bet. But you know some of my background um well so i actually i grew up on a, in a border town i grew up in el paso texas and i spent most of my life there until i ventured off to college on the East Coast. I went to the University of Pennsylvania. I wanted to go far away from home, mostly just to have a completely different experience. And let me just tell you, Philadelphia provided that, <laughs> provided exactly that. It was such a culture shock for me, especially coming from from a totally different uh, multicultural town and city.
0: When you say culture shock, that can play out two ways. Culture shock can be Eye-opening, and you learn to you know love the city and celebrate different parts of America. Or it can be, what the hell did I get myself into? Which one was it?
1: <laughs> you know, I think at the beginning it was the latter. It was what the heck have I done? <laughs> um, it, it, you know, it's Philly's a really big city uh, compared to El Paso, and and back in the day. Um, it was a really big change. I had never actually been there. I went there sight unseen, believe it or not. I used to watch the info videos. Um, and I watched Tom Hanks in the movie Philadelphia. I'm not I'm not lying.
0: Wow, that's a rough way to start.
1: Yeah, that's how I learned what the campus was gonna look like, what Philadelphia looked like. My parents couldn't afford to take me on college tours. So I so you know, those college info videos were helpful for me because that was my only my only insight into where I was going.
0: Well, what did, what did surprise you the most when you got there? What was the, the biggest thing that those videos did not tell you about?
1: Uh, you know, so Penn is a very urban campus. Um, it's definitely changed a lot, um, but I just wasn't prepared for sort of big city life. Um, you know, there was just a lot of crime um, in West Philadelphia. El Paso traditionally has been one of the safest cities. Um, and it was just, you know, and also, hey, no one prepares you for how cold it is uh, when you're coming from that's, a very that's southwest a desert town. <laughs> yes. uh, and I remember because it was, a, I think it was like the blizzard of 96 hit and I was watching everyone go to class outside of my dorm window. Yeah. And I was like, you people actually walk in this? <laughs> I'm like under the blanket, you know, and I'm like, how do people do it? It's so cold.
0: I mean, El Paso does get snow, right?
1: It does. It does now.
0: Yeah.
1: Um, it, and more so, which okay. tells you um, climate change is real. Sure. I guess I'm one of those. I actually believe not, in that. At but Philadelphia um, levels, no. No, no, nowhere near. And especially back then, um, it was just such a contrast. But also, you know, it was um, it was good because it, it, you know, Philadelphia pushed me to explore different cultures. Um, it challenged me in many ways. Um, it's a blue collar working town city and uh you know I I actually did my best to wander around and explore it. Uh and you know I I El Paso is super friendly. That was a thing. Like I just found um the East Coast to be somewhat just like a colder sort of interaction until I got to know it. And then the more comfortable I got, which I think says a lot about you know pushing your own boundaries and exploring and branching out. Um, the better the better it went. And so I think it, took, it was a rough first year. My freshman year was awful. I'm not going to lie to you. Mm-hmm. I had a really tough time. Um, mm-hmm. Also, I mean, there were major city streets running through the campus. Uh, and I was just not <laughs> used to that used to world. That. Yeah, um, it was just very different.
0: Well, there's definitely something to the difference just in the walking down the street culture of the East Coast. Because I re- I remember when I was in graduate school, one of my fellow graduate students was from New York and we had a political science conference in Chicago, which I was more familiar with because I grew up near there and we go to Chicago and we're walking down the street from wherever it was, Palmer house, I think. And there's people on the sidewalk passing us who are, you know, like looking up and smiling and a couple of people say hi and we say hi back and, and his jaw is like dropping to the floor. And he said, what's happening? I said, what do you mean? He said, what, what, why are people so nice in this city? And it just struck him that it was a big difference from New York where people pass each other by and they, they may look at each other, but they don't really interact with each other as you're walking by. But he was, he was noting time and time again, that I guess in some places of America, people do actually acknowledge each other and smile and sometimes even say hi to a stranger.
1: This is true. And I think that's what I had a hard time adjusting with is that I was, you know, old passive girl wandering around. I was saying hi to people. It sometimes was not well received. Sometimes <laughs> I think people looked very confused. And they were, why is she speaking to me? I don't even know this woman walking down the street. And so, you know, but it was, you know, Philly has some great restaurants. It's got a great Culture. Um, It was my first baseball game that I ever went to, so I still have a special place in my heart for the Mm -hmm. Phillies. Mm -hmm. Uh, It was also my first football game, believe it or not. Major football game. Even though I'm a 49ers fan, I still Mm -hmm. there's still a soft spot for the Eagles because that was my first game. You're
0: having having a great year, then. So, what what did you do (laughs) after college?
1: Well, so I actually interned on the Hill. Um, I I majored in political science and theater, which I think actually ended up being perfect for where I ended up working up uh, working later in life. Nice. The two went well, quite well together, but I, um, I, uh, so I graduated, I, I actually interned on the Hill. And then when I graduated, I, I went to work in politics. So I actually worked on, at the Republican national committee at the very onset of my career. And then, nine um, 11 happened. Mm. And I remember I had walked out of the Capitol, right. As the twin towers, Um, were being hit. And I ended up walking home all the way from Capitol Hill, all the way out to Ballston, which is Arlington, Virginia.
0: That's a a walk.
1: It was a really long walk. And I remember I walked over the bridge and I saw the Pentagon and all of the emergency response going there. And it was just something that you just never forget.
0: Were you aware of the flight's uh, hitting the buildings in New York when you left? Is that why you left the Capitol to walk home? Or is this something you found out along the way?
1: No, they had—they were evacuating us. Mm-hmm. I remember the fear. Um, I remember everyone sort of running out of the building. We didn't know where the next plane was heading. I think there was just a chaos of that day of not knowing what was about to happen. I remember going back to my desk um, at work and I remember my boss calling and saying, what is going on? He had been out, He was out of town at the time. And I and then they told us we need to clear out. Right, it, you need to go home. Um, and it was hard. You know, it was <laughs> I think they shut down the DC Metro. Yep, uh, it was impossible to get a cab. Mm-hmm. Um, every cell phone, if you did have a cell phone uh, back in the day, was jammed. There were no signals. I had to find a landline, and I eventually just eventually walked home. And I remember that night thinking, as I watched the news over and over and over. I think I had nightmares for days because I just watched too much of it. Um, right and i just remember thinking like what what do i do mm-hmm. to mm-hmm. try to prevent that from yeah. ever happening again
0: well that's interesting cuz you were you were working in washington you were contributing to this you know great representative democracy but you you felt that the role you were doing wasn't where you were meant to be
1: yeah that was exactly it i you know as much as i enjoyed being in politics i think i just wanted to be more on the policy side of the house. Yeah. Um and so I actually ended up working in the Pentagon at the very mm-hmm. beginning. Um that's where my first first job was and I uh and I did. I deployed uh, I ended up deploying to Baghdad. I was Ambassador mm-hmm. Bremer's aide. <laughs> I was his EA. I was a young staffer at the time. So now that's
0: that's that means something to us, but frankly to a lot of listeners, especially students now who are listening they, they might not get the reference of Ambassador Bremer and the Coalition Provisional Authority. So give the, the the primer on that. What what was the Coalition Provisional Authority? What was Ambassador Bremer's role? And then how did you support that mission?
1: Yeah. So there were, well, I mean, obviously there were a lot of transitions that happened, but it was right after the, um, the onset, the end of the conflict. And so What happens is that there's basically sort of the US came in and set up sort of a mini government apparatus to work closely with the Iraqis to try to get them, um, you know, to stand up their own government and the reconstruction going forward. Uh, And so Ambassador Bremer gets chosen for this role. He basically becomes like the leader of the country by de facto. Um, So, sort of like, and working in conjunction with the Iraqi leadership, but you know there was so much turmoil at the time. This was in 2003. We got there in May 2003. And General, I think Jay Garner was there originally with CPA, um, as it was called, and then it became the Coalition Provisional Authority after that. Um, when Bremer takes place, and so you know, I remember I flew in, uh, which is still so surreal to me looking back on this. I flew in on General Myers' aircraft. He mm. was the chairman of the Joint Chiefs mm-hmm. of Staff. Mm-hmm. And I remember thinking at the time, because I was, I was really young, I was in my 20s, and I had no idea what I was getting myself into. I was a civilian. And so it's very, you know, it's, it, it's rare to get that opportunity to deploy side by side with the military in such a situation like that. Um, and I remember thinking, I am by far the lowest ranking person on this aircraft, because it was <laughs> General Myers, um, 20-something-year-old me as a junior, junior officer, a staffer. And all these ambassadors, like it was Ambassador uh, Patrick Kennedy, who was a legend at the State Department. Mm -hmm. Um, It was Ambassador uh, McManaway, Ambassador Hume Haran, who was an Arab linguist and
0: just an incredible mind. Legendary Arabist, yeah.
1: Yes. (laughs) Yeah. And I just remember um, sitting there. We were in those side seats, um, and the jump seats. And I just remember that on the way, I was just typing memo after memo. Um, For all of them, and I just remember Hume Haran's kindness. And finally, Hume Haran looks at me with such gentle. He was so incredible. He was such an amazing soul. And he looks at me, and he's like, "I can tell you're scared, and I know that this is a lot, and you are just the I like by staffer. I mean, I was the one doing all of the admin work, all of the memos, um, just making the trains run. And this is all happening. By the way, on the flight heading out. We were flying to Kuwait first. And I'm talking to the Bush administration because it was President Bush who was in the White House. And I have, you know, Condoleezza Rice calling and I have um, Colin Powell on the phone and, and all these Henry Kissinger's calling. And I mean, this is all happening while we're on the flight and I'm working with the military side by side. I just can't explain how surreal it is looking back on that because I'm so young and juggling everything that there was to juggle and working with others.
0: That's how the work gets done. I mean, the histories are written about the presidents and the generals and the ambassadors and all of that. But the work that gets done, its it, you're writing the memos, you're setting the meetings, you're making sure that the principals are prepared for these sessions. And honestly, my experience at CIA and State Department and working around the White House and the FBI and the Pentagon there are some exceptional principals who would do a very, very good job, absent that. And there are a whole lot of them who would fall apart without that level of diligent prep work by, as you put it, the lowest ranking person on the plane.
1: Yep, I mean, honestly that was me. <laughs> and I remember and I remember this because I remember, you know, when sat by rank or whatever, and I got the cot in the very back. and I finally I remember, because Hume Haran comes up to me. And he was like, this is going to be a marathon. I, he's like, you should go back there and get some rest. And I was like, but I have like 5 million memos to type out. And like, I've been incoming from all directions. And I just remember him going, you see that cot back there? Go grab that cot before someone yeah. else grabs it.
0: Because he'd been through it for decades. <laughs> so, he knew how it was going to play yes. out. So, yeah. What was your yes. biggest takeaway from, from that whole CPA experience? I mean, many people who worked in that transition period between the, the liberation of Iraq but before the insurgency and de facto civil war, a lot of people describe that period as, as chaotic, as full of so much hope and promise. But so many demands already coming from the society and the different interests in Iraq that like everybody around there knew that things were going to be much more difficult than they had thought months or even weeks earlier.
1: Yeah, yeah, I think I'll agree with that assessment. I think it was um, a very challenging situation that the U.S. government was walking into. I, I think we went into it very idealistic. I remember the pre-planning that took place. I was in those meetings in the Pentagon as it was, um, as it was kind of happening and being developed. But I, I you know, I, I don't mean this disparagingly against the U.S., but I don't we. We, I think the Pentagon does uh, amazing at doing their war planning and their campaign planning when they're doing going into a conflict, but we're not necessarily the best of what comes afterwards with the nation building. And I certainly Mm -hmm. saw that firsthand, and I saw the the competing politics of it and what happens. Um, And you know, and I, uh, to be very honest, I also saw egos um, for the very first time, and that's something that you really. I think I've always remembered throughout my career in various scenarios is mm-hmm. how that actually can really impact certain things and in political factions, even when you're all on the same team, so to speak, mm-hmm. you definitely kind of see that play out. And that was my first eye-opening experience to that as someone seeing very, very senior people obviously right. working at this level um, and watching it play out and looking at, you know, looking back at it on CENTCOM and all of these different players in it. Um, I think all sort of approaching it with their own best of intentions, but it was definitely where I saw sort of kind of the thiefdoms that tend to develop,
0: mm-hmm.
1: um, in politics, certainly there.
0: Was that the first time that you had spent, um, spent some time overseas?
1: Yes. And that was incredibly challenging. I, um, <laughs> it was my first time, um, on a deployment and I, uh, it was a learning experience for me, um, mm-hmm and I, I it was a lot it was a lot to adjust to, especially um being younger and not not prepared for all the different things that that comes with, especially honestly being a young woman um in in the middle east and and all that all of that challenge at the time, and also just being you know frankly scared uh because you are in the middle of a war zone um and you're watching I remember we had an i e d attack. Right in front of our um, convoy on our motorcade with Ambassador Bremer. And I remember seeing that firsthand. Wow. And so, and living that and knowing um, the gunner, the sergeant, uh, the gunnery sergeant that was killed in that attack. And he, he was my friend. And so, I, I think that was for me, um, being oh, side by man. side with the military, I have so much tremendous respect for them and yeah. the intel officers that were there that I got to know. I think that just sort of continued my progression to stay within the community um, and come back, and so that's when I actually I joined the national security community uh, permanently. Is upon my return, I end up in the Pentagon back there, and then I um, I end up working more of the intelligence side of the house, and then that proceeds to uh, going to the National Counterterrorism Center and focusing on um, countering global terrorism and sure. issues like that.
0: Talk a little bit about uh, in CTC, the national counterterrorism center, because it's one of those entities in the U S government and the U S national security enterprise that is frankly less understood than most because it came about in that wave of reforms after nine 11. And people often confuse it with the sometimes better known counterterrorism center of, of just the CTC, uh, that's housed at CIA, but was a community center before 9-11. So talk a little bit about NCTC and its role and, and what you think it was doing well in, in the time that you were working with it.
1: Yeah. Um, so I think, um, like I think NCTC at the time when it was created was a, a critical sort of effort of fusing foreign counterterrorism information and fusing it domestically here. And bringing together the U.S. government, the national security apparatus. And I think the one thing that I think was they made huge progress on during my time there, and I was there for a few years, was their work was really bridging the gap between the intelligence community side of the house and the law enforcement intelligence community side of the house. And by that, I mean, like, really bringing FBI information into the fold and really working together together. And in in terms of how Mm -hmm. we were tracking terrorist threats Mm -hmm. um, overseas and following the lineage of operations and at times preventing operations from happening um, and and really just seeing um, real time, you know, you've seen that show 24. I remember when they came to the center of that um, um, to film it and to do some filming and kind of meet with the staff. And that's really what the operation center there really looked like and at the time i would say like we were in the middle of it right we were writing plans um to counter al-qaeda across the middle east um and all these terrorist groups this was probably 2007 to mm-hmm. t- the 2010 timeframe. time frame um i was the front office ea and by ea it's like the executive assistant but it's more like the more substantive right. projects person by then so um i had worked for the director.
0: And who is the director then? Is this is this Mike Leiter time? Yes. Okay.
1: Yes. So I worked for Jeff O'Connell, his deputy, who was a longtime chief of station across the Middle East, super, super well-known and respected. Mm-hmm. And then I worked for Mike Leiter, who became the director of the National Counterterrorism Center. Um, and then that, you know, we had a lot of really bad things happen in that period. Yeah. We had the Fort Hood shooting um, we had the underwear bomber, as it was known, the Times Square incident. These are all terrorist attacks happening um, here in our country. Um, I was very familiar with al um and all these different mm-hmm. um, people who were, you know, uh, foreign terrorists radical, radicalizing Americans, so to speak. Um, and so I, you know, I have great respect for the mission of NCTC. I think it's evolved in, in time. I think you know they're kind of trying to figure out. What do they do now with the domestic terrorism threat? Since that was really not the mission, and how right. do you fuse and bridge the gap more on the domestic side of the house, which is I think incredibly challenging, just because of the way that our laws are based and sort of the challenge that we just that we have more in terms of when it comes to that. But um, I certainly have a lot of respect for the people at NCTC, and mm-hmm. I think it really actually was a very growing experience for me too, mm-hmm. just because. I had gone from being the Bremer staffer, um, had worked, to be honest, I'd worked the detention portfolio in the Pentagon, Mm. and then I was more on the forward-leaning side of the house, bridging intelligence and operations. And um, that was uh, actually the beginning of my major exposure to the White House because I um, was doing a lot of planning for the National Security Council at the time. So I started going to the National Security Council meetings, um, a lot of the sort of policy development there and sort of bridging the gap of intelligence and really working closely mm-hmm. with the White House at the time.
0: Yeah. So it's interesting, you you started out with the Republican National Committee and definitely on the purely political side. But by this point, with the work at the Pentagon, going to Baghdad, the work at the National Counterterrorism Center, you you're basically now a national security professional. And I'm wondering if you had the same observation that that many others have had, that the certainly within the intelligence community, like the NCTC, that it is extremely apolitical, that it's it's mission focused. And the mission is on, in the case of NCTC, this terrorist or this terrorist group uh, attempting to do this bad thing, and we need to stop them. And partisan issues don't enter into it is it was that what your experience was like as well
1: yeah um a hundred percent like i don't you know i know well first of all i think people know me now as a republican i've you know sort of outed myself in quotes on that um i don't think that anybody knew my political leanings at the time i don't think most of the people even knew that i had started my career in politics um mm-hmm. uh, that mm-hmm. just was never brought up sure. um and i think um from the times, I mean, and I saw, I was, I've been very fortunate um, in my career that I've had some incredible assignments that aren't, that's not really the traditional route for someone who is in the IC in the intelligence community
2: yeah. and
1: the progression of career, because I've, I've really worked for a lot of cabinet level individuals at a very young age and sort of ended up in assignments that were really at that level. And so, and I saw, you know, obviously I would see the politics of it. It was, you know, I, I was there for the Bush administration. I was there for, um, the transition to the Obama administration. And, um, but it, you know, I never, the politics of it never really came into play. It right. was always new absolute, absolutely neutral. You check that at the door. I don't mm-hmm. think I even really thought it about anything through the political lens. It was always about how do we serve the mission best? How do we serve and help this, you know, the current, whatever administration it was, succeed yeah. in these operations to keep Americans safe? That was always the bottom line. And to be honest, I, that, that is what I lived and saw right. by the community and the people in meetings and including politically appointed people
2: mm-hmm.
1: at times. I never, it was never a dynamic where you had that overlay and partially because there's not a lot of political appointees. In the intelligence community, right? DHS is a little different, which we can talk about later, which yeah, I think complicates right. it a little bit. Yeah. But for the most part, it is people who are longtime career people mm-hmm. who have been doing this um, who are leading it. And you know, the intelligence community is there to inform and to support.
0: Right. And frankly, it, it seems natural because there is some distance, both physical and organizational between most elements of the intelligence community and, you know, say the White House itself. But things probably feel a little bit different when you are on the NSC staff or you're on the vice president's staff, you're you're in the, what I will continue to call the old executive office building, but has been renamed in recent decades, the Eisenhower executive office building right next to the White House and where a lot of these executive office uh, personnel do their work does it Does it feel like you're more in the political orbit once once you move into a job that is both physically and organizationally proximate to the president?
1: It does um, in some ways, and I you know it's a little it, you know I'll give you um, some perspective for for different angles of it. I think when I was going to meetings as part of the Intel community um, to the National Security Council, Certainly that dynamic was there. You knew that they were driving policy. There was an agenda. You're there technically, if you're in the intelligence community, you're there to inform, to provide assessments, um, to give the best you know, input you can. And then it's over to the policymakers to make the decisions, right? That's kind of like the division and how that kind of comes together um, at the National Security Council. I think you know, it was interesting, um, sort of some of the changes that did happen. Uh, When I was at the Department of Homeland Security, Mm -hmm. it was a little different there because it was definitely a very more politically charged environment. Now, granted, I got there right before uh, the former president, Donald Trump, got elected. I got there uh, a week before the election took place. And so I took the assignment at DHS, uh, not knowing who the president was going to be at the time. Right. Um and, and then that transition took over, and uh we d h s obviously became a very the focus of of the trump administration. It was sort of a i would say almost an extension of the White House in many ways uh where a lot of the executive orders were being were mm-hmm. very focused on homeland security issues
0: that's right um and right from the yeah. beginning and and you you had just started there. what was your role when you first went to d h s
1: oh boy, did I pick a good one david <laughs> i uh I always end up in the middle of uh, the fire, so to speak. I was the chief of um, intelligence Mm -hmm. policy. Mm -hmm. And so I was in the intelligence component at DHS. They have, you know, we, we, that component is a member, that office, that organization is a member of the intelligence community. Um, And it's, it's interesting because they kind of have, we kind of have two bosses. We have the Director of National Intelligence. Uh, the DNI is our boss for that mm-hmm. that office. But our other boss is also the Secretary of Homeland Security. Right. And it's a very unique component because no one else really kind of has that sort of tension. So you have two hats that you wear and you're in this department. And I think you know it plays to good things and bad things, I would say, uh, because I had not really seen a politicized intelligence community component until I got to DHS because the uh, politics definitely sort of there was a constant tension of trying to figure out how you navigate when you're when you are the intelligence community but you are you are surrounded by a lot of the political sphere in a way where you're embedded in something you don't really kind of have that firewall so to speak that a lot of the intelligence community agencies have mm-hmm. um, and I think that there was a lot of tension when it that so you know I would attend uh, you know, there were the travel restrictions yep. or more 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 infamously known as a travel ban. Um, and nowhere did I see that more blatantly where it, it was hard where I was having to I was a liaison uh, for DHS to the intelligence community on a lot of these efforts. And so I was having conversations with the heads of intelligence agencies about the challenges of these executive orders, how to implement them in a way that was going to not detriment be detrimental to our national security apparatus. But on the other hand, I was wearing the DHS hat. Yeah. And I've got to say, it put me in some very challenging positions at the time, especially when you're talking to your former mentors and bosses mm-hmm. and you're sitting in the DHS chair now, um, in, a, in the Trump administration. And it was, <laughs> I'm not going to lie. It was, it was hard. Yeah. Uh, I remember mentors of mine looking at me, very confused about it, and um, but again, we are there to serve the greater good, right? Whoever, regardless of who is in the Oval Office, and you do that job and you do it to the best that you can. And so, fast forward, I end up um, in the Vice President's office. Now, I'll say this: um, what I was getting to was uh, the two staffs. There's the National Security Council and the Vice President's National Security Team, and mm-hmm. While we operate and work closely together, we're actually very different, if you want me to get into that.
0: Well, I I think we should, but uh, let's go back a step and tell me before you joined the vice president's staff from DHS, um, did you have any sense of the history of that split between the National Security Council staff and what always used to be just called OVP, the office of the vice president? Um, Was there any briefing coming in or were, were you reading history or finding out that in fact, there, there is an evolution, especially in recent decades of the vice president as a national security figure who does get some staff support on these issues?
1: You know, I was, I was somewhat familiar. I, because I had known people that had uh, taken on roles in the vice president's office, as opposed to the national security council, from the intelligence community. Um, I knew that, um, mm-hmm. it sort of had evolved over time. Um, also depended on who was in the role, right. As a vice president, um, and how they would leverage it. A uh, little known fact, I actually interviewed, um, a, a, many years before to actually be on, uh, to potentially be on the VP's national security team. And this oh. is probably, wow. I want to say 10 years before I actually t- ended up there. It was during this my NCTC time
0: Cheney at the time.
1: Yeah, I did interview for a job um, yeah. with Cheney. And then I interviewed later for a job, which would have been under the Obama administration later mm-hmm. on in that small world. And mm-hmm. for whatever reason, the first one, I was like, I'm not sure that this is the right fit. Um, the second one, um, I think I was just sort of in a different place, and uh, the, the mm. candidate chosen was a better fit for it. And I, to be honest, I was, I was right at the cusp where I was becoming so senior in the IC at, at such a young age that I needed to sort of get more management experience. Does that make mm. sense? <laughs> in Absolutely.
2: order to totally,
1: yeah. And I needed to really focus on that. And so, um, so yeah. So I, so I was aware that the vice president had their own sort of national security setup. I was not, I don't think you really sort of understand the, how it operates and how you kind of fit in. And of course, every operation is different, but for the most part, right. um, a lot of the basics are the same on how you interact. And I really sort of think it depends on your role and what portfolio you're covering on yes.
0: yeah.
1: how it sort of plays out in the end.
0: I was surprised... So when I started at CIA, um, I'm old. So the vice president was this guy named Al Gore, and he was a voracious consumer of intelligence. And Leon Firth, who was his national security aide, was one of the most robust customers in the wider White House community of all kinds of intelligence. So I came in just assuming vice presidents were always like that. And it was only years later when I discovered that you only had to go back in the living memory of some of the senior intelligence officers who were finishing their careers then. You go back to the 1960s and 1970s, and it was a, a very different story of uh, Lyndon Johnson as vice president for John Kennedy, didn't ba- basically had no national security support. And it was some people at the National Security Council staff who kind of took it upon themselves and said, oh, shucks, you know, I feel sorry for the guy. Let me make sure he gets a weekly briefing. But there was no staffing for his role in national security institutions because Kennedy basically excluded him. And what a difference from then to, to an Al Gore and then to yeah. a Dick Cheney and a Joe Biden, where you have an actual staff apparatus set up to a staff apparatus set up to support them for all of the meetings they're attending often on a daily basis. And that, that's kind of what you walked into the, the support mechanism that had been institutionalized by that point. So you, you had a role to play, even though it was an unusual administration in so many ways, they, they actually did have a structure to support the vice president, right?
1: Yes. And the interesting thing is that it's still, um, it's surprising. Uh, I I feel like it's challenging to be the VP, right? Because it's still surprisingly very small. And I think, uh, Given the fact that it's the number two person uh, in the leadership of our country, it's just incredible that it's still a, it's a, still a smaller apparatus compared to um, the president's side of the house, and um, and it's still like limited. And I'll, I say this because okay, this is inside baseball for U.S. government. But what I was surprised about is that um, the vice president's office doesn't have its own billets. And in government speak, that means that, you know, jobs, right? Specific jobs that are, I don't know how to to explain this, David. (laughs) Yeah, they're
0: like staffed to other offices of the, the executive office of the president, including the National Security Council. But that means anything that's dedicated to the vice president is de facto not dedicated to some other presidential function.
1: Exactly. And I was surprised by that because you... Um, and nowhere, <laughs> it's very surprising when you get there, by the way, and you join the team. Because suddenly, um, six months, depending on when you start, you can get up, get caught up in this whole fiscal year thing. And it's legislation, actually, that I th- I personally think needs to change um, where you could start. And then four months later, they're like, hey, you're 10 years up because you came in at the wrong time. So we have to now negotiate with the National Security Council and the National Security Advisor to the President to see if they're willing to give us a slot to keep you on staff so that the Vice President can have a Homeland Security Advisor, which to me is completely mind-blowing.
0: Yeah. that, that is. <laughs> it's one of those things that certainly when scholars look at it and they look at the way we've treated the Vice Presidency over time, it's it's amazing because we have plenty of history of presidents. Unfortunately, either you know, passing away or resigning or somehow giving the office to the vice president. Um, But there's not really that much preparation for it in terms of just the regular daily workflow. And it's just coincidence or perhaps happenstance, whether you get someone who's prepared for the presidency or not, it's a crash course in governing because in some cases the VPs were even left out of crucial decision-making by the president who selected them for purely political and electoral reasons. So in your case, you find yourself working for uh, Mike Pence and you're doing staff support for him. How did you find the vice president as what I'll call a customer of intelligence and homeland security and other information? Because obviously the president was different in many ways from his predecessors, but less attention has been paid to the role of the, the vice president during the administration when it comes to his actual daily work schedule and what he was doing to be prepared if he had to, to step in as president.
1: Yeah. So it was, um, it was, it was interesting because I will say it was like watching two completely different scenarios. It was like black and white. Um, huh. and I say this just because, um, I think Mike Pence, you know, he'd been a governor, he'd been around, um, Congress. He's familiar with the role of intelligence. He's familiar. He's got, uh, family members that have served in the military. He's great. I I know that he personally has such great respect for the military. And I'll say that he had a lot of respect for the intelligence officers that served on his staff. Um, so, I mean, unlike the, his boss, he he did receive the PDB every morning, the presidential daily briefing. He consumed it. He asked questions. He, uh, you know, we all got briefed on staff. I had my own briefers come in in the morning um, when it wasn't crazy at times. And he would often rip things, you know, rip things out, um, write notes on them and ask for follow-up. And then it would come back to me through the PDB briefer. And, you know, it's kind of an interesting dynamic because, if it's a really specific in the weeds question and mm-hmm. w- it comes back to Homeland security, we can, which we can talk about because there's definitely a gap there. Mm-hmm. If it was more of a Homeland security issue, it usually boomeranged to me because the PDB briefer covers, they're usually a CIA person and it's, you know, they're looking at foreign, foreign kind of global dynamics. Mm-hmm. Um, but we were facing so much domestic stuff
2: Yeah, yeah.
1: that he, he had to, you know, he would write me notes and say, well, what does this mean? You know, do we have more on this? And so they would kind of, it would kind of come back to me and then I would have to run it down depending on what it was. But like I covered, I covered Africa for the vice president. I don't think many people know that. I actually covered the Western hemisphere. So I covered Mm -hmm. a lot of the, um, I covered Mexico, North, you know, North Africa. I covered Canada. Um, I also covered uh, the tri-border region I pretty much all of Latin America came under me. And then I also covered the United Nations uh, portfolio. So I was actually Mike Pence's lead for the UN week. Um, I did all of the coordination and all of the meetings with Uh him for foreign leaders. Uh, It's a lot to have on your plate (laughs) as an officer. But again, we are a small staff. And so I was, um, while we're divided regionally, in the vice president's office i was more the functional person and then sort of by de facto the catch-all so <laughs> if we don't have enough <laughs> if we don't have enough billets then
0: it's olivia's job um, to fill in
1: then it's olivia's job and i yeah and so the western hemisphere person left and they never backfilled it and and it, so i ended up and and because i had been a dhs i would covered a lot of the immigration portfolio the border security it was sort of like, well, it makes sense. Just give it to her. So I covered Venezuela, which was a very heated topic in the Trump administration, mm-hmm. um, along with, you know, immigration, along with um, domestic terrorism stuff and mass shootings and natural disasters and resilience, which is a very different side of, side of uh, national security as opposed to foreign side of the House. And I, and I just say this because it's just so incredible that mm-hmm. here's the number two of our country. And we are a very small team that really works very closely together. While the National Security Council has an office dedicated with full of staff, like ten people in a staff, right in that office for each issue that I probably just mentioned. And and so you know, there's a hundred people working these issues, and there's one of me going to all the meetings. Um, and it's just such an interesting thing. Now, granted, the NSC drives. The more policies inside of the house, they do the interagency coordination. That's where I think it's so fascinating how different the two roles play out and how that kind of gets done. But so when you're on the VP's team, or at least, I mean, the way it was for Mike Pence is you really are there to advise him and inform him. And um, I, 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 what I found in him is that he was always respectful and mm-hmm. always willing to listen. You may not like the ultimate result of what happens when policy takes over and politics kind of come into play, Mm -hmm. but he certainly did take in the intelligence. He asked questions, he was very engaged. I would say, I think the PDB people would say that as well, um, to make sure that he took the time to do the briefing and he would fit it into his schedule. And, um, you know, he was the first thing that would happen in his morning. And I know this because I was always prepared for if there had been a mass shooting or something, right? I actually, <laughs> it was a very interesting scenario where I worked very closely because I never wanted the PDB. I mean, this is part of you know teamwork, right? How we work as a team
2: mm-hmm.
1: in national security. I never wanted the PDB briefer to be caught sort of off guard if they didn't have the domestic information from DHS because that's not really kind of Part of it doesn't really feed into the intel that they're briefing. It's okay. something that I think we need to change. Yeah. So I was always playing kind of catch up. I would wake up early. I'd share what I knew in case he asked about it. It was a very operational sort of relationship that we had. Mm-hmm. Um. And then the PDE reefer would call me actually afterwards and say, "You're right." He brought it up, and I was mm-hmm. like, "I knew it." It's front and center. Um. But again, I had the domestic portfolio, and I will say that that is one of the hardest roles in a very very challenging White House to work in because it is the mix of domestic politics really comes into play
0: that what you're saying here Olivia is music to my ears because it there's this to the extent that people think about the intelligence briefings to senior policy customers it's this image of the briefer going in talking to the policy customer, and then walking out and the day is done. But it really is more of a team effort. Even if the people staffing the senior customer aren't sitting in on the briefing every day, there's still that role. I I, I remember the role that you played was the role that often uh, Chuck Rosenberg played for me at the FBI when I would take the PDB to Bob Mueller when he was FBI director. Often outside his office or over at the Justice Department, Chuck would pop over and tell me a couple of things about what was going on having to do with FBI business that had nothing to do directly with the foreign intelligence that I was briefing from the PDB. But the context mattered because I knew the, the frame, the framework within which the director would be receiving my briefing. It mattered intently, intensely what was going on. And he was definitely focused on some issue within the FBI's purview and his questions would often reflect that, and it was very helpful for me to have somebody who was both helping me put my briefing into context, but somebody to whom I could pass on, oh, here is how that intersection played out in the briefing, and it might actually help you, Chuck, or in your case, it might actually help you, Olivia, do your job for the principal later in the day.
1: Oh, it was incredible i mean look, I think we honestly post a briefer, and I would have failed if we didn't have that. We were definitely. Mm-hmm a team. And I was really grateful, um, for, I was very fortunate that I had some incredible PDB briefers Mm -hmm. who were definitely about back and forth, um, information, um, and understanding, especially I will say during COVID. Absolutely. Um, because I covered that and it was, um, sort of (laughs) how we were going to navigate this whole entire scenario. It was very, very incredibly challenging, Mm -hmm. but like, I mean, I covered a lot of, there were a lot of mass shootings um,
2: mm-hmm.
1: and a lot of domestic events that happened when I was in the role it was um, I, I will say that the mass shootings were are still some of the hardest right. things that I care that I carry uh, within me knowing having worked in the aftermath of them and how hard it was and how painful they are when they happen for everyone um, and the loss in the communities it's mm-hmm. communities that hurt and I we were very in lockstep with things like that because like you said you know the FBI had certain info DHS had certain info I was basically getting it and I would basically like bridge it together and it was a great partnership because I never wanted the vice president to be caught off guard or be uninformed that's how I approached the role it didn't matter who was in the role at all mm-hmm. for me it was never political it was about making sure that he was served to the best of my ability, and mm-hmm. if that meant working as a team um, with with everyone and bringing this information and, and giving it to him and sharing it.
0: Yeah. Well, you mentioned the pandemic as well, and you obviously played the the key role on the vice president's team at a time when the vice president was playing a key role. Now that evolved over time, and the the shift of who was going to be the point person at the White House and ultimately in the executive branch over COVID-19 changed quite a bit during your time there. And of course, after your time there, but I'm wondering, reflecting back on it, do you think that the vice president is the, the proper position to be heading something like a crisis task force, whether it's the pandemic, whether it's border security now, what are the advantages and disadvantages of having the vice president essentially take on a specific portfolio instead of being one of the people who's advising the president and getting up to speed on all issues without substantive responsibility for one of them.
1: Yeah. You know, I, I'm conflicted on that, uh, because I certainly lived this firsthand, uh, with Mike Pence and, um, and look, he actually, he had, he had a lot of the border stuff thrown his way as well. <laughs> and he had the Venezuela stuff thrown his way too. And, Uh, You know, it's it's challenging because you have – it it can be helpful in the fact that it is the vice president, and um, when he's chairing the meeting, he obviously is a number two, and he can drive things forward, or she can drive things forward, depending on who's in the chair, and and really drive the process and command – that people that the interagency come together. And, um, and I think, you know, there's, there's something to be said for that, where you can make immediate decisions where he can walk down the hall and say, this is what we're going to do, and have a straight conversation with the president, and then you move out on it. So there is power in that. What I would say, though, that when it comes, especially with COVID, like the COVID pandemic, I think that. it, it is so consuming to run something like that. The COVID task force was all consuming. There was no bandwidth for anything else. And I am just grateful that we did not get hit with an enormous hurricane in the middle. You know what I mean? Like no anything else that would have been major, Um, there really wasn't any bandwidth for him. It was all consuming. I mean, he um, and, you know, speaking to. His role and the things he did. I saw Mike Pence. He would come in in the morning, and he. I always left after him, especially during that time. Um, he would be there till ten or ten thirty at night,
2: hmm.
1: and he. It was exhausting, and I think that is sort of. There's a careful balance there because you should something else happen. You want, you want the leadership of your country to be very accessible and prepared, and and paying attention to not just one thing, but of course, uh, a broader uh, policy issues, broader leading the country. And when you have something like that, it can really kind of take you out of that role of being the number two and you are in the weeds mm-hmm. and you become sort of like yep. the crisis manager yeah. for all of this. And I don't know that that is the best scenario to for the vice president of the United, United States. I think that that is especially when they're not, um, to be honest, like uh, we worked very closely together and very well together, but, uh, and I don't mean this just, I don't mean to sound arrogant at all, David, I think you'll appreciate this. Mm -hmm. Thank goodness that I had served at very senior levels of the government and had, and was very familiar with how the interagency works, how the government works together in situations like this and moments of crisis and knew a lot of the leadership Mm -hmm. long-time leadership in some of these agencies where I was able to use that to help the vice president. But in another scenario where you may not have a staffer that's been around and has worked in so many different agencies and lovers who has that sort of background on how this is supposed to function, which it has functioned like that and not really because we had other dynamics at play. Mm -hmm. Um, I think without that, it could lead to tremendous failure.
0: I don't think I don't think there's arrogance there, Olivia. I think what you've described is you know, the purpose of having people with experience in governing because yes, there is often the wave in American political history of wanting fresh blood because we're sick of the people who have been governing for so long, and that goes down into and includes the civil service. On the other hand, you get a bunch of people in office, certainly at the elected level and the senior appointee level who have largely never worked in a functioning national security system. They don't know how it's supposed to work. They don't know the lessons of the past in terms of best practices and things to avoid. So then they, in theory should rely on the people just below them, the, the, the people running things at the staff level to essentially keep those mechanisms going. And if that is also missing then you're essentially condemning yourself to repeat the mistakes of the past.
1: Yes, absolutely. And I'll say that's, um, this, the process was certainly broken during the COVID response. And it was, you know, we went outside the norm of how the national security council process works and it was done in a completely separate sort of process. And I'll say that, uh, For example, evacuating cruise ships, I know that that's sort of such a random thing to bring up. I cannot tell you how much work that was. And I can't even explain to you the number of people staying up day and night that I worked with on phone calls um, at the State Department, at the NSC, at the Coast Guard, that were basically running this sort of operation on the side, saving lives. And it was enormous. And I was on these calls with them, and I was weighing in sometimes from the vice president's office in a positive way, saying, Yes, just move. Yes, get these people off. What is going on? Why won't they let the ship dock at the port? Like, um, I say that because in a normal thing, there would be meetings taking place, and this would be part of the agenda, right? There's a PCC process and a DC process, deputies committee and principals committee where decisions come together and instead we've got this task force and then we've got a shadow task force that jared kushner started on the side and he starts this operation at fema so i mean how many um how many meetings are we having where everyone's sort of working on this thing but no one is talking to each other and for me who was you know his lead staffer it made my job so much harder. Mm-hmm. But. I, knowing the process, was feeding it back into the NSC. So I was talking to the senior directors at the NSC, the senior director of resilience, um, people like that saying, you know, hey, this is what's going on, what's going on with the cruise ships. We've got this cruise ship that we got to talk at in California. Uh, Mike Pence wants docked, like, and feeding it back through that process in addition to running the task force meetings, in addition to helping the doctors figure out which way was up when things were really hard for them and they were being publicly attacked by their own peers, in addition to helping Mike Pence stay afloat and watching him basically try to just survive on a day-to-day basis and getting the incoming from governors and the phone calls. And I just say there's just such a critical role that the U.S. government plays that I think I saw a complete disregard for by a lot of the more political figures in the Trump administration. And I only say that because it worries me for the future um, because, you know, there's this kind of, there's a sting where people detest the deep state. And I say that in quotes Is we were labeled technically, I was the deep state working right. in the White House. So it was certainly said to me at times. And I find that term so, I despise that term. It is so hurtful. Uh, because the people that were members in the deep state, so to speak, that I worked with side by side, were working day and night <laughs> to do the best job that they could. And when you do that, and you're undermining, and you're going to replace all these professionals, um, I think it it could be of it, it will be an even more dangerous situation. Because, like, I was able to call back to my colleagues, I was able to feed it back in the process and say, "Can you guys?" you keep running that meeting on these cruise ships. I'm going to go over here and figure out what we're going to do with PPE, like personal protective equipment. And I'm going to go over here and talk to FEMA. And I'm going to tell my boss, why isn't Pete Gaynor involved? And why isn't DHS involved in the response since they know how to deploy the equipment out to the States? Why aren't we using them? Let's get that going. I mean, so, you know, it was just, It would have worked so much better if we would have actually followed some of the planning that we had done because we had exercised this months Mm -hmm. before Mm -hmm. that's what we do as a u.s government we practice for these situations um certain dynamics you know may come our way that we're we're unexpected but um so i think that's i say that because that is more the operational side of the house of why this matters and and like you said why expertise matters at least for people that that know the process and can help whatever principle it is that you're serving under. In my case, it was Mike Pence. How do you how do you help him navigate this?
0: Right. Now for many jobs in what I'll call the civil service, I won't use that that other phrase, Um, for many jobs in the civil service, there is the the I guess the benefit of bureaucracy. That is there are people to backfill you if you're on a team and you're all looking at an issue like terrorism at NCTC, you're part of a team, there are others doing it. You were in a job where you really didn't have that amount of, of backup. So at a certain point, even apart from political issues and ethical considerations, just the, the grinding nature of that job, such long days, such long nights going from one thing to another that is a very draining job. And most people don't stay in a staffing job like that for a long period of time. What were the dynamics that did push you to leave? And and how did you feel about doing it during a time when there were so many crucial things going on?
1: Yeah, so I had been in the role, I was there for about two and a half years, I'd actually had been extended. So I was I was actually scheduled to stay. I would have been there through the transition through the following April. I would have been there three years, which is a long time. That is rare
2: yeah. <laughs>
1: um, for someone to get extended for that long. Um, and I would have been there through uh, the Biden administration in that role, or, you know, unless you they, they, you know, it's up to their, it, it's up to them uh, whether you keep that person in that role or not. And, um, but I, you know, I had started to think, well, you know, yes, you're correct. Like it is a grueling job. And after two years of doing it, uh, I was like, okay, what is really going to be my next step? Um, Do I go back into government? What's my next assignment? And you start to think about that and you look across the intelligence community. Uh, But for me, as I was starting that process of thinking about what am I going to do next? And I was talking to General Kellogg, who was my boss at the time. And he was thinking about, you know, where I would go, what kind of things I wanted to do in my career for the next step. Uh, that was when the onset of the COVID pandemic hit. And by that point, uh, you know, every principle is different. Um, some principles, and by principle, I mean, you the leader, or whoever you're working for. Some are, you know, they're used to the national security apparatus, people switch in, people switch out, and they're totally fine with it. Right there's a level of comfort that they're used to. I've seen different cabinet level officials behave differently in terms of that and how that they receive it. Uh, Mike Pence in his situation, he is very um, guarded about his inner circle, and it takes um, it, it it takes quite a while to establish trust and um, a sort of openness that I think is challenging when you first start in a role like that. Mm-hmm. Um, And that kind of grows with time. And when the COVID pandemic hit, that was really what drove me to stay, uh, was because I was like, I cannot leave. I would feel like I would be bailing on my responsibilities um, in such a moment of crisis for our country that I and I and so I stayed at the beginning and he was that was before he was in charge. Um, Thank goodness I hung in there and was going to all the meetings and was his rep on. On the COVID meetings, I was the person attending the meetings for him. I was attending the meetings for General Kellogg as a continuity person, kind of just kind of tracking the issue for him at the very beginning. This is before we knew that he would eventually become the head of the task force. And the day that he became the head of the task force <laughs> was um, first. We were like, "This is going to be a thankless job, um, an impossible job to <laughs> yeah, do." No doubt. Uh, we we knew what that was going to mean. I'm, he knew what that meant. And for me, I ended up in the hot seat. Because I, uh, quite frankly, I had some challenging dynamics um, that happened during that transition. Mm -hmm. I've never seen this before in my entire career. And I had worked in policymaking and intelligence circles for a very long time, where I was basically told good luck by someone running it prior to me. There was no there was no transition. There was no, here's a list of the people that we've been calling.
0: They're basically just passing the buck to you to resolve a situation that they had not.
1: It was ugly. Yeah. And I've actually not spoken about that very publicly. Yeah. Um, I had to scrabble as a staffer to piece this all together back again and start mm-hmm. running the meetings with mm-hmm. him. And I think that's what kept me stayed.
0: Were there others involved in the process? Not, not your predecessor Olivia, but were there others involved in the process who saw that happening and helped you piece it together, or was it literally every person for themselves and you had to reconstruct a whole communications order and infrastructure for, for doing this for doing this kind of work?
1: Well, so here is the issue. Everyone got pushed to the, to the side. Yeah. Like the senior director that I had been working and attending his meetings basically gets cast aside. And, um, the people in those meetings that I was going to were basically pushed aside as well. And, um, so I ended up leaning on some of them. Certainly some of them were like, you know, how can I help you? Um, I ended up working with some cabinet level people who were like, how can I help you? Their staff was like, uh, what can we do, um, to get you through this? But it was pretty much like build this thing from scratch. I. Fortunately, you know, it is my nature to um when things like that happen, I really go out of my way to build those personal relationships and mend it. So I went out of my way to mend that relationship with the people who sort of left me to my own devices. And they eventually came back to the table. I think they were, you know, it was done in such a poor way. Nobody nobody I mean, that the day that it happened, nobody knew. Nobody knew that Mike Pence was taking over the task force until it was announced to the public. Wow. I was told to write his talking points. Uh, Cause I was the one that knew what was going on with it. And when I was told to write those talking points, um, uh, when I saw Mike Pence go out in public, I literally, I remember texting my husband and I was like, well, I hope I did a good job because I'm probably gonna get fired if I really screwed this one up because he is going down the talking points verbatim right now. Wow. Um, yeah. And, 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 and he has just found out that he is now in charge. Um, and so, you know, I'm <laughs> there. I, again, I was grateful that I could, sort of lean on some of those people who were forward leaning but the dynamics were such where um it was going to be more politically sort of driven including on the comm side of the house and the messaging Mm -hmm. where there was a tension between the people who were trying to actually actively work on this response um just in a factual science-based manner especially the doctors and the different agencies were navigating this, right? Like CDC, um, a lot of the people were pushed out of the room. They weren't given a seat at the table. Dr. Redfield was left on his own. Mm-hmm. So it was a very challenging thing. And sometimes this was not my Pence's doing. I mean, I I was the gatekeeper for this meeting. Um, sometimes the orders came from above.
0: Did you have a tension when you were writing talking points for the vice president, especially in this period, especially on this issue of Trying to get the right balance of you have to be saying things that praise the leadership of the president, or you know that the vice president won't have the authority within the White House ecosystem to do what needs to be done. On the other hand, if you make it too over the top, right? If you're if you're making it um, some level of complete hero worship in the talking points, then you lose credibility with much of the scientific community and and the public. How did you manage that when crafting these talking points? Because it's almost, it's almost impossible to get right, isn't it?
1: It, it was. And, um, I will say that with you, if you were to go back to some of Mike Pence's earlier briefings where he was giving a lot of facts, um, very factual briefings where he,
2: right. Right. Did
1: not stray a lot. Um, I was actually very proud of that work and moment at the beginning. I mean, I was hearing from like outside of the neutrality of politics in this conversation. I was hearing from my most liberal friends who hate Mike Pence's politics, who were texting and saying, I know you're working hard. I like your boss is doing a good job. Yeah. Right yeah. now. Just was, to respectfully, right? data, Yeah,
0: And it wasn't it wasn't political for a while. Right.
1: And so that was me. <laughs> Working with him, and then it changed, and and when you asked what was, what was it that made me then decide that I was no longer gonna hang, gonna hang in the role, mm-hmm. it was when that started to change, um, because right. uh, there were people taking my talking points and altering them without me knowing, and to me that's a very frightening thing, yeah. especially if you've worked in national security or in the intelligence community, that would be like, can you imagine somebody coming in and altering? the talking points that you wrote for your PDB, without you knowing it and then putting it in front of them and you finding out while you're sitting there with the individual that they had been changed. um, That's a pretty scary scenario.
0: And it creates an ethical dilemma for you, which is, you know, is the work that you are producing being, for lack of a better word, corrupted in such a way that, that you feel it's, it's violating your service to the mission, and each person judges that differently. You know when it crosses a line that right. you are no longer contributing to the greater good, but you're being used in service of something that's that's taking away from the mission, and that that's a hard thing to assess in real time.
1: Yeah, and I think it just comes down to, I think it's always important to have your own sort of moral compass and red lines on what what how you're going to navigate in that situation, and at some point. I think for me, it was like I cannot in good conscience continue in this role, knowing that I'm over here trying to do everything that I can in a manner that is, you know, doing my best uh, and, and a matter that lives up to the oath of doing your best for the American people, mm-hmm. especially having spent so long in the national security, security community, and then that being used to the detriment of the American people. When you know that it could possibly cause harm, I then at that point, watching all of these dynamics had to walk away because at some point I was like, I can't, I can sit here and I'm concerned. I've certainly had concern about what was going to happen for these meetings because I was like a critical part of pulling this together. I had concern about what was going to happen to Dr. Burke's. Um, and Dr. Fauci and these other doctors, because I spent a lot of time having after hours meetings, trying to help them navigate this whole situation, um, and helping them kind of come together in their efforts. Um, and I was worried because I was just like, you know, you're only one person, but when you bail sort of speak in that situation, Mm -hmm. is it? Is it, is it even, is it more harmful to the effort to do that? But I just couldn't, you get to the point where you really have to look yourself in the mirror and say like, are you enabling right. um, the possible herd of people? Or are you actually helping or holding the line? And, you know, I, I knew the doctors were still going to be there. Mm-hmm. Red lines for me were, you know, when you're getting up in the morning and there's articles coming out, attacking the people who are sitting at the table with you, advising um coming from other parts of the white house and i'm the person going up to the doctors and i'm actually apologizing to them and thanking them for their work and apologizing for the fact that i have no idea why that article's out there talking about them in such a disparaging way when they're just kind of doing their best Mm -hmm. and you know during a really hard time i just at that point i was like i don't i don't want to be a part of this anymore and it's also hurtful i didn't feel like it was. I thought it was hurtful for my role, for Mike Pence. It would be disingenuous for me to be going into these meetings, and he gets up there, delivers whatever talking points, comes back, is super upset about how it's gone over, and it makes him, quite frankly, look awful, right? Like that op-ed that was written that he wrote, that was awful. And that was, you know, these are the battles that we were losing on our side. And I was just like, I, I'm no longer helpful in the way that I want to be helpful to you in this job,
0: there's a big difference at that point when you, when you do leave, when you, when you're serving, whether it's at the National Counterterrorism Center or DHS or or within the machinery of the staff supporting the Vice President, you're you're not really sharing your opinion. Yes, you're sharing your your national security expertise to craft talking points and homeland security expertise and bureaucratic mm-hmm. knowledge, but. You're not seeking to influence in the same way that wh- when you leave, you're, you're U.S. citizen, right? You are, you are not bound by the silence uh, agreement that you de facto have when you're working on terrorism issues at NCTC. And you've taken advantage of that in the last couple of years to, to talk about issues that you think are right and wrong in the execution of national security and homeland security in the political realm. You've, you've talked about your views on political questions. Has it been more liberating for you to feel free to speak about these issues and have a platform to do so? Or has it felt more odd because you still have that recessive gene of I'm, I'm a civil (laughs) servant and I'm, and I'm playing my role in the bureaucracy and my opinion being front and center just kind of feels weird.
1: Uh, I would say it's a combination of both. Um, It definitely, this is not something that I ever saw myself doing. (laughs) I remember I would watch people on on TV. I would see all, you know, I would see former National Security Advisors. You know, I'd watch Phil Mudd, who was from the FBI and CIA, um, on domestic issues. And I'd watch people on MSNBC, CNN, all the different networks. And I think if you would have asked me any time in my career like oh would you be interested in doing that the answer would have been heck no
0: run away no way
1: (laughs) no and i mean because you're still there you not you don't talk to the media you don't go to the press like that's actually that's you've got to get that completely cleared before you do that um you've got to there's all these mechanisms especially when you have a clearance and so um it has been an adjustment i would say it doesn't come naturally for me (laughs) Um, it's something I have sort of grown into, um, in terms of the role. And, you know, sometimes I'm not as, um, flashy maybe as some of the other commentators because I still really abide by when you're speaking, there's, um, the importance of words. And, um, and I try to very much speak truthfully, um, in my assessments or when I have opinions, I try to base them on real life firsthand factual experiences that I think really matter. And I sort of kind of stay in that lane, even when it gets political, I'll even say, you know, uh, uh, this concerns me because this is what it, it possibly means for the future of our country and why, why this worries me. Mm-hmm. Um, and, it, you know, when, you know, when I see the rise of domestic terrorism and extremism and kind of the sort of intermingling of politics of, of embracing that, Um, having seen this happen globally in terms of other countries and the danger that 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 poses and watching it happening in my own country is frightening to me. And so I, you know, I think I've sort of now, you know, this is where I am. I made a very uh, big decision in my life to Mm -hmm. speak publicly about my concerns. And, you know, I still, I'm I'm very passionate. I'm still, you know, but I, at the end of the day, like my heart is in national security. Um, I don't, you know, I think a lot of people don't necessarily realize that basically that's where I grew up right? mm-hmm. <laughs> for the last 20 years of my adulthood has been in and around this community that I have loved. And um, so, you know, I, I think there's good em- pros and cons to it. I try to be supportive. Um, there's definitely things that give me pause when I see it. Um, but at the end of the day, like I, I try to use it for good when, um, when I do it. And, but it's not something that it sort of isn't neat. It's definitely kind of a weird, mm-hmm. <laughs> a weird scenario for me because I just never saw myself in this place.
0: And yet it seems like there are some things that, that you, you overcome that by, by feeling like the American people need to know this, that your, your particular experience and expertise gives you a window on something that can illuminate things. And I'm thinking here of Recently, when you spoke out about the fact that you found some classified documents in the ladies room at the Eisenhower executive office building, just sitting on the shelf, somebody had gone in, left them there, uh, which is not the norm. We should point out when classified documents are transported yeah. between buildings or within buildings, they are not just laid down and, and left there. That is extremely rare. Um, and you highlighted that to point out that you you had plenty of instances where you thought that classified material was being handled very cavalierly. And so that the fact that it was left in the restroom was shocking, but not entirely uh, out of what could be expected based on other things you saw, right?
1: Right. And I think, you know, I I think for me, a lot of it is also just um, working in whatever capacity I can to educate Americans who, you know, aren't from this world, right? They're not living in it. Um, and just a different perspective and just to understand, like, also when I found those documents, I'm sure you under you'll understand this because you, um, you've been in this world for so long. I, like, you know, the leveling, I felt like anxiety. <laughs> I was like, whoa, what are these doing in here? I was like, literally scrambling. I was like, do I have a folder? I was like covering Absolutely. them up. Like it was just an immediate reaction without thinking about it. And then I was like, and then you get that paranoia of like, oh my gosh, it's like holding a hot potato. You're like, what am I? Like, what do I do with this? Like, what, like, they're not mine. I found them. And so I was like, I gotta turn this in. So I'm like, so I literally marched myself right up to security, showed up. And I mean, they were just as confused as I was when I said I found these in the bathroom. Um, And, you know, they asked the usual question. They were like, how long have they been there? And I was like, well, I really honestly have no idea. I was, I just happened to look over to the shelf and was like, oh, somebody left their papers here. And then I saw, that they were classified in a certain way. And I was like, whoa, Mm -hmm. I am going to take these right now Mm -hmm. and just hand them over and turn them in. And I'm, maybe it was an honest mistake. I don't know that you should be reading classified information while sitting on the toilet, but you know, that's just me. But I, I was just saying that because that's not normal. And, 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 you know, when we, when we handle classified information, like those documents are in a safe within a secured facility, within a secured facility, especially some of the documents that were found um at, you know, down in Florida that right. were not in a secure place. And that's why that matters because that's that's not normal. And that's also, to me, it's potential like lives that are in danger depending right. on what is in those documents, um, right. which is why it matters.
0: Well, in addition to highlighting some of the things you saw that you, you, you think are relevant now. Uh, you've also used the past couple of years to advocate for different issues. Um, and some of those are more in the political realm, but I want to highlight one that just recently you've joined on to. You've uh, added yourself uh, to the board of 97%. Talk about that effort and why you feel that's important.
1: Yeah, so I, you know, I, I mentioned this earlier, um, and thank you for bringing this up. I, it's just an issue that I'm very passionate about. Um, I, don't, I don't talk about it as much, um, but I, um, I, having worked on a lot of mass shootings in my tenure, a lot of the aftermath of gun mm-hmm. violence, and seeing sort of how, um, how prevalent it is across our country right now, I just, it is my hope that we can figure out a way to work together to make a difference and get to a better place. And I think, um, you know, it, it is such a politically charged issue, unfortunately, that I feel like it really shouldn't be. I think we should be able to get to some common ground. And this organization is is really bringing together um, gun owners, um, gun owners and non-gun owners to try to figure out a way to present policy ideas or at least work together to advocate for changes in legislation and sort of be a voice for in a cross-partisan kind of way, if that makes sense, where mm-hmm. it's different different viewpoints coming together where we meet and talk about things and we try to find the common ground. And it's based on 97% because it's, it's, that's the number of people that agree <laughs> that we need to be changing things. Um And I think this organization is fascinating um, and I hope that it'll make a difference. It's got, I mean, it's got former NRA lobbyists that are on the board um, that are also coming forward and saying, we've got to, we've got to figure out how to change things. Um, Mm -hmm. And I, you know, I, I joined because I, I've seen uh, both aspects of it. I've seen the impacts of these shootings. My own aunt um, is a victim of gun violence. Fortunately, she was safe, but, she was in the Walmart in El Paso when that mass shooting happened.
2: Right, right, And
1: for me, that was, um, that's the nexus of, of sort of hate and, and the rise of domestic extremism and these kind of ideologies and social media kind of stuff that's happening and the nexus of that with guns, um, and how dangerous it can be for our communities. And so, and I grew up, um, around guns. I'm from Texas. Mm-hmm. I'm from Texas. Um, my, you know, I was I was taught the proper how to ha- properly handle a gun, how to properly store a gun. i um, at a very young age, and I grew up with guns in the household. Um, so I'm not, you know, I've been deployed. I was trained um, to shoot a gun, so I'm not, you know, I'm not anti-gun. And I think, um, but I and I but I understand the passion of victims and survivors and all and, and of Americans mm-hmm. that are so tired and upset about just everything that is happening here and how uh, gun violence is really so extreme in our country that it's prevalent every single day um, it, someone's impacted by it. And so I think it's, you know, we're, we're in a very divided time. And while we have sort of our own echo chambers that we tend to remain in on this issue, I think the only way, the only path forward is really to come together on it and, and push and push for it um, and push our elected leaders to engage.
0: Well, Olivia, I'm going to end our conversation by reaching into our chatterbox and pulling out a random question for you to answer. Let's see what it offers for you. (laughs) Tell us your favorite or least favorite spy or political thriller movie or TV show.
1: Wow. (laughs) Um, That is a wonderful question. Uh, I don't know. I'm a big fan of the show Homeland. Oh, really? Did you ever watch that?
0: That's an interesting one because it's 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 dramatic. Clearly, it's got a lot of a lot of action, a lot of personal drama, of course. But a lot of people in the national security realm, you know, will roll their eyes at many of the over the top things that would never happen. But I guess that's why it's fiction, right?
1: Right, and I also think that um, I mean, maybe that's what it is—like uh, the fact that it's just it's not trying to be. Um, I, I mean, it's just it, that's what it's meant to be, right? But um,
0: it's escapism.
1: Yeah. And I also, you know, I I like it because I think that it's really fascinating mm-hmm. because it does touch on mental health. And here you have someone that was incredible at their job in this show, right? Who is basically mm-hmm. um, brilliant, but also has that, suffers from that. And it is a challenge for this, the, for the lead character, right? And I always found that fascinating um because i always wondered you know like the moral struggle of those around that character i always found that so interesting to have someone that's brilliant and sort of the tension there of they're successful they're good at their job Mm -hmm. sometimes they make bad calls and i think that's more common um more common and familiar to people that work in national security about sort of the aftermath of, of those decisions. And so I just wondered. I guess maybe it's because I've been in like positions like that where you're mentors and there's tension there and like mm-hmm. your mentors are watching you and, you know, and then sort of like, how do you engage in that? And so I guess maybe that's why I like it.
0: <laughs> that's a great point. It it certainly did open up conversations about mental health, not just in the national security bureaucracies, mind you, but open up workplace mental health conversations, which Honestly, had been stigmatized for far too long. So there is that net benefit from it as well. What about uh, fictional representations of the vice presidency? I mean, you you you've had an up close view of how a vice presidency actually works, and whether it's something that's comedic like Veep, or something that is supposed to be more realistic like the the West Wing. How how have you found that? <laughs> the public conception and pop culture representations of the vice presidency. Uh, do they touch at all on reality in your view?
1: I think they definitely do. Um, and I'll just say this about Veep. I have only, um, I'm glad you brought it up because I keep telling myself that I'm going to watch it now. I watched probably one or two episodes um, mm-hmm. while I was actually in my role Oh, as when I started to watch it
2: and I couldn't watch
1: it. It gave me um <laughs> And that's exactly what what happened. I came home one night and I was like, I really need to watch this show because I'm there, right? And <laughs> it gave me anxiety. I don't right. really have a lot of anxiety, but watching it, I was like, this is way too close. It's way too close to home, and I can't watch this right now. It's a, like some of the dynamics and situations were pretty spot on at times mm-hmm. on on sort of the kind of dynamics and interactions that happened. Um, and so I just I actually had to take a step back and and I was like, this is not you know, this is not de-stressful for me. This is not the way to, to de-stress after coming home from these days at work. Um, it's a little bit too close to home.
0: That is a valid point. Olivia, thanks for spending some time with us on Chatter. We appreciate it.
1: Thanks for having me. Thanks for the great conversation.
0: That was Chatter, a production of Lawfare and Goat Rodeo. Please subscribe to the podcast and find us on Twitter at that was chatter.